The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Susan Aram. She is the co-founder and current executive director of the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, which is a statewide organization that permanently preserves farmland to grow healthy food the kind we want to put on our tables. Susan graduated from the University of Iowa with degrees in journalism and English and in the midst of the farm crisis of the 1980s. After graduating and unemployed, she fell into community organizing, where she advocated on behalf of the family farm, those lessons she has carried with her for the next 30 years as an organizer and working writer. She has published seven books, including Labor Pains, Inside America's New Labor Movement, and On the Global Waterfront, The Fight to Free the Charleston Five. But in recent years, she has returned to her adopted home of Iowa and dedicated herself once again to saving the family farm. She was nominated by the Des Moines Register in 2021 as a person to watch, and she has been leading a new campaign that we are going to be focusing on today titled Circle Our Cities. Welcome, Susan. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted. As a dietitian, I want to put healthy food on the table. And there are so many barriers to doing so. And when I found what you were doing with the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, I knew I wanted to have you as a guest. How did you become interested in farming, especially after getting a degree in journalism and English, you know, how did you get focused on organizing around family farming? Well, I tell you, there was no escaping it in the mid-80s in Iowa. It was on the news every night. It was in the newspapers. It was in the legislature. There were demonstrations going on all the time. There were stories about farmers killing themselves, farmers losing their farms, auctions where other farmers would come and, and try to save the farm. It was just everywhere. It was in the air. And when you graduate from college and there's and you've fallen in love with the state that you've moved to and there's no other work, there, there wasn't some other distraction, you know, of starting a career or something like that. It was simply unemployed, which was the nature of the beast in the mid-80s, quite honestly, for many of us. Then I thought, well, who are people of like mind? Who are people that if I showed up, I could do something and make a use of myself. And that was it. I joined an organization called Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement. And I was canvassing for them and I was helping organize demonstrations and gatherings. And there was this moment when we pulled together, I don't know, two, three hundred farmers to meet with representatives from our senators, Grassley and Harkin. And the stories that happened that I heard that day from those farmers of getting run off their land They stayed with me forever. So many people called it a conspiracy theory when farmers would say, we're getting run off of our land. But it wasn't a conspiracy theory. It was a conspiracy fact. It's exactly what was going on. What was at the root of that crisis in the 80s? Debt. Debt was at the root of it. 
farmers have been going into debt to farm for decades, more than a century. But the advice they were getting from our land-grant institution, Iowa State, and from our Department of Agriculture at the time was, you know, get big or get out, specialize in corn and soybeans, et cetera, et cetera. And these folks had become over-leveraged. Then, you know, people smarter than me will say that there was the Carter administration and and the Russian grain issues and all that. But at the bottom of it was that when farmers go into debt, when all of us, any of us go into debt, we have limited our choices. We have restricted our future because paying off that debt is the first thing we have to do. And everything we do lends itself, so to speak, to paying off that debt. And so who's in charge? The banks, the financial institutions, they decide who farms and who doesn't, what is a viable farm and what isn't. Mm. And it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed in all this time. Right. In fact, I would argue that the situation has increasingly gotten worse. And what I see today is the same. We've got mental illness and mental mental health problems related to depression of farming debt today. We've seen consolidation so that when in Iowa today, Iowa imports nearly 90% of their food. This is insane. And when I think of Iowa, I think of corn, soy, and hogs, and much of that food is exported. And so, of course, Iowa has to import this food. And the irony is that Iowa has this amazing soil. It's literally you know, in the heartland where we should at least be able to feed ourselves, but we're not. Right. In any other scenario, economists and universities would be telling us, hey, there's a market here. If we're paying other states and countries to feed us, why don't we feed ourselves? There's a market. There's job opportunities. We could be job creators. And instead, there's this kind of magical silence about that here in Iowa and in the Midwest and all the commodity states saying, no, the only markets are corn and soybean, hogs, chickens that we export and we sell on some abstraction called the market. But the last time I checked, people in Iowa and everywhere else had not stopped eating. Right. And there is a market, and we have the soil that can grow the food. Now, what we allowed to atrophy over the last 50 years, and some people would say we allowed it, some people would say it happened intentionally, but in any case it happened, we allowed to atrophy the systems by which we move that food. So all the logistics of processing and distribution at a local and a regional level are gone. And we're expecting, by the way, and maybe I'm jumping ahead, but we're expecting present-day food farmers, market farmers and direct-to-consumer and or call them specialty crop farmers, whatever you prefer, we're expecting them to not only become craftspeople in what they do in terms of growing their food, grow their food without chemicals, which means a much higher level of expertise in how to manage bugs and soil health and the weather, but also we're expecting them to become expert marketers and expert distributors. And that's asking a bit much of a single person. So I'm counting on the next generation to continue to do what they're trying to do now, which is to rebuild that local food system so that our farmers can simply farm. (laughs) And what I think our universities would call it is rebuilding the market, because I think that's what they're talking about when they talk about the market. They're talking about the infrastructure that's involved in getting the food from the farm to the consumer. Exactly. And I know that from a public health perspective, 
And certainly we saw this with the pandemic. People really wanted to buy fresh food from local farmers. And it was the local farmers who had these smaller operations who couldn't keep up with business. They were doing pretty well because people realized, you know what? I need to get food on my table. The supermarkets, really, people didn't even want to go into them because of the risk. So reestablishing these smaller, more productive farms with redundancy and therefore resilience certainly makes sense to me. Now, you know, in preparation for this interview, I went back to the National Young Farmers Coalition. They In 2017, they did a young farmer survey, and they collected data from 3,500 young farmers. They reported that in the coming years, as many as 400 million acres of farmland are expected to need a new farmer, but the barriers for farmers, they were, number one, access to land. And your operation, your organization is helping young farmers get back on the land in a sustainable way, producing the kinds of foods that I recommend to support public health. That's right. And when we use that National Young Farmers Coalition survey to explain to people that land access is an issue, we always add the word affordable land access because we think the economics here are the most important thing. That when you, when as a land trust, we restrict the use of the property for a certain thing, and in this case, it's for sustainable table food production. And I can assure you, we have all the metrics that we use for the term sustainable, and we offer farmers third-party certifications that they can choose from that we approve that would verify that they're sustainable. But what we mean is building soil health, keeping the air clean, improving water quality. When we restrict that use, we drop the value of the land. And, you know, one person's value is another person's cost. So when that land sells, it sells for much less. And for those landowners who can afford to do this and who are, you know, inclined to want to leave a legacy of these kind of farms on on Iowa's landscape, it's a wonderful gift because once they take that step, it's easy peasy from there on out. The farmer buys it at about a 40% discount. And they know going into it that there are these limitations to it. And then they sell it at the probably at a similar discount, although some people argue that the value of good organic soil will go up over time. <laughs> but let's assume they sell it at the same discount. That means that the land debt that they would have gone into is a much smaller portion of their operating budget. And they can now pour their hard-earned and scarce profits into their operation in those early years instead of into mortgage interest. You have created a campaign called Circle Our Cities, where you are proposing 10 farms around 10 cities in 10 years. Describe how and why this can benefit us in the future. Oh, absolutely. Some people in Iowa would say, we already have farms around our cities. What's the big deal? (laughs) So our campaign is actually to put 10 permanent sustainable table food farms around every city, 10 cities in 10 years in Iowa. In the first couple of years, we will actually end up developing a model that cities across the country can use. And why do they need a model? Because right now, in most parts of our country, if someone wants to grow table food for their community and they live outside a metro area, they're paying through the nose for that land. So if you want to know one reason why the vegetables are so expensive, it's because they have this high mortgage or this high rental rate, because why? They're competing with 
housing development prices or they're competing with commodity prices. Either way, the price of the land that they're on is some of the most expensive in the area. So what we're proposing in the campaign we've launched is to permanently protect 10 small farms around each city in the next 10 years so that those farms are not competing against those outside forces so that farmers can actually afford to farm. And we know from research that came out in late 2020, actually, that if we just dedicated the 50 miles around every Iowa metro area to table food farming, we could feed every man, woman, and child in that metro area with that food. And that's an omnivore's diet, not vegan, not anything that's out there for folks, omnivores. But, of course, that's not going to happen because those miles around our cities are slated for other uses, right? So we're saying, okay, let's just do 10 in 10 years around 10 cities and see how well we can feed our people. Our projections are that we would feed up to 800,000 people and we'd be sequestering about 10,000 tons of carbon a year if we could pull this off. So our campaign, which is in its proof of concept right now, we've hired someone in a smaller town with the optimal circumstances so that we can see if our method works well and what we need to tweak. But once we do that, we're on a $3 million campaign over the next three years to fund this. By the time we're done, we believe we would protect 4,000 acres of land that would feed, like I said, 800,000 people, which is nearly a third of Iowa, a lot better than what we're doing now. Exactly. Susan, let me take one break because we're halfway through. I just want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Susan Aram. She is co-founder and current executive director of the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, which is a statewide organization that permanently preserves farmland to grow healthy food. I love the word you use for that, Susan, table food. And I'm glad you brought up the point that it's not vegan. You're also talking about meat animals and dairy. And of course, when I think about some of the problems that farmers have told me, even some of my friends who have livestock, for example, one of their biggest barriers is finding processors. So along with those 10 farms, what are we going to do about the infrastructure to support the processing of that food? I'll tell you, COVID-19 wreaked havoc across this country and great tragedy. But the one silver lining was that it really amplified the fragility and the brittleness of our food system. Mm-hmm. And here in Iowa, for the first time in my lifetime, the legislature got serious about funding small and regional meat processors because even one of our farms was locked out of processing and almost lost their livelihood because of it. There just simply wasn't enough capacity. And add to that the kind of choices that our workers had to make walking into those massive meat processing facilities. They literally had to choose between living and their livelihood. And we saw how many tens of thousands of meatpacking workers get sick and a fraction of those die because they had to make that choice. So we know the system is needs work. We know that it broke down during COVID. And thankfully, it was so obvious and so crucial that even Iowa's legislature said we need to pour some money into these local meat processing facilities. So we're very pleased to see that because we think that a more decentralized version of meat processing would, just like a more decentralized system of growing food, in some ways, it may be considered less efficient, but we think it's more resilient. 
And it pays off in ways that may not show up on a balance sheet as well. Exactly. And those are really the questions that we haven't been asking in agricultural economics, like the value, for example, of a cohesive rural community. You mentioned something in a side comment in a talk that you gave several years ago, where you mentioned that you drive around rural Iowa and all the coffee shops have been replaced with subways. And that just created this uncomfortable realization of the corporatization of our small towns and how we don't even have locally owned coffee shops anymore. You're right. Our little town of West Branch, Iowa, is currently having a discussion, at least on their Facebook page, about what kind of businesses they would like to see downtown. And the first one that came up was Dollar General or one of those dollar stores. Mm. And for those of us who can see kind of the picture of that, we see more money getting sucked out of the local community to go to a Dollar General kind of store, even though it really speaks to the poverty of the people in the town, because they need that. They need that kind of dollar-a-thing economy to feed their kids and get them their school supplies for the year. So you can't blame people for wanting a Dollar General. And yet you can just watch those dollars just flying out of the the community. And yet a local coffee shop is where the old farmers sit and gab about the week and where their wives sit in yet another part of the coffee shop or a different coffee shop and gab about their week. And it does. It's that part of that community that we're losing rather rapidly. And it's just one part. But it's, it's more than just sad. It's damage. It's damage to our social fabric when we let those kind of things just die out or, you know, we don't stand up and fight for them. I agree with you. You know, when I see those Dollar General stores and even the subways and no supermarkets, people are going into gas stations and getting their food there. I just feel like there should be a red light, a warning light going off for exploitation. And it troubles me, which is why I'm so heartened by your project. And I'm hoping that this campaign becomes a true national model of a different way forward that we so desperately need. We need to talk about land trusts and how your description helps make farmland affordable. Okay. So we stand on the shoulders of the land trust movement of the last 50 years because other land trusts generally created at first to for conservation purposes, to save our waters, our cliffs, our beautiful mountains. They are the ones that have helped establish the kind of laws that allow us to operate, including an immense victory a few years ago for a federal tax incentive that provides up to 100% deduction of an adjusted gross income at the federal level for up to 16 years for voluntarily dropping the value of your land just to protect it as a farm. I mean, it's that kind of stuff because we don't have the kind of funds to pay people for that difference in value. That's the kind of stuff that we lean on very heavily, and we have other land trusts to thank for that. But when I came to this in about 2010, 2012, 2013, we'd moved back to Iowa. We saw that last nail going in the coffin of the small family farm. I started asking around, you know, is there anything left? (laughs) Is there anything we can do to stop this? And, you know, it looked a lot like the farm crisis of the 80s, only a little less visible. The problems were still there. They were just harder to see. And we pulled those folks together, a lot of them who had fought in the last farm crisis, and we said, could this be a solution? And they said, yes, let's go with this. And the reason why is because a land trust is a permanent decision. 
land trusts make a forever promise on land that they don't own, and that's called a conservation easement. And that document, about a 25-page legal document, is attached to the deed. And that document lists all the future uses and restrictions, permitted uses and restrictions of that property in perpetuity. So we thought, okay, finally, we can do one thing on this landscape that's permanent so that 30 or 40 years from now, our kids and grandkids aren't going through this again. Even if they have that option, who knows if they will at the rate land and the industry is consolidating. We think this is our last chance to do it. So you put those restrictions on the land, it drops the value. Most land trusts see about a 20 to 30% value drop. And like I said, there are some tax incentives available for eligible landowners. But in the end, what you're doing is allowing that land to come off the market for construction and housing developments. And in our case, it also comes off the market for conventional commodity crops. And the only market, which we just recently published in the Des Moines Register as an idea with an economist who's on our board, the only market left is the market for local food growers. Mm-hmm. Those be the people competing with each other for that land, and that's it. And so that reduces the value. So that's with a conservation easement, and we have what's called affirmative language, which requires this kind of farming in the easement, which drops it even more by about 40%. But some people give us their farms, and we didn't see that coming, quite honestly, So when they give us their farms, we use what's called a ground lease, developed and promulgated by equitytrust.org, I always say, because it sounds like an insurance company, but it's not. And in that case, farmers, young farmers, new farmers, they get to lease the land at a similar discount for as long as they want it, but they get to start owning the buildings that were donated. And we give them equity in those buildings with no interest and no down payment after a three-year starter lease. We can't think of a, a lower bar by which a f- farmer could enter farming, but we take that gift that the landowner gave us, which they considered an endowment for silt, and we balance that endowment and that income with the needs of those beginning farmers to get started on the ground without high expenses. Wow. This is so promising. I mean, this really gives me hope for the future. The other thing I wanted to mention, you know, I've interviewed so many farmers in the Midwest who are trying to provide their communities with truly good table food, but they can't do it because of drift from the commodity crops. So we've increasingly seen, for example, spraying with not only Roundup or glyphosate, but we've also seen more recently introduced 2,4-D and dicamba which have horrible drift records. Our state departments of agriculture cannot keep up. And it's so unfortunate. You know, you, you've even described any farmer that is trying to produce organic food in the middle of these commodity crops is doomed. They're going to fail. They cannot survive. But you describe these farms that will be around cities as a buffer between the chemical intensive commodity crop farming and the communities where people really want food, you know, if given a choice, you'd have to be crazy to say, no, I don't care if, if you spray my food with poison. Most people want the kind of fresh, sustainable food that you're talking about. So the fact that you've given farmers an opportunity to get away from the debt-intensive, chemical-intensive, industrialized farming is a real gift to the future. Well, thank you. I mean, the farmers, and there were many of them who helped found silt, understood that if we're going to ask farmers to not use chemicals, we need to give them a break 
because that's, <laughs> because it's uh, it's a very labor intensive process to farm without chemicals, and it takes a skill and it takes time to learn that skill. So we believe that dropping the value of the land also allows those farmers to to learn their craft, and so they can serve all of us. Iowa has some of the worst water quality in the country. We would be glad to have some of these farms buffering our rivers. Why aren't we planting chestnut trees? Chestnut is a multi-million dollar industry in in the United States, by the way, and a a multi-million dollar import industry. Why aren't we planting chestnut trees along our rivers and uh, holding the soil with those trees and that grass between the trees and then serving a purpose to the farmer by providing an income at the same time? There's so many other possibilities, but certainly as a buffer between our metro areas and our commodity crops, as long as the parcel is large enough to also protect the food farmer and that Mm -hmm. we put up natural barricades like trees and bushes that will help. Ultimately, there's no protection against dicamba from someone who is spraying without thinking about it. And for that, we're going to need some regulation. But I'm pretty confident that the soybean farmers who are getting nailed by dicamba, and there's a number of lawsuits out there about that, are going to do something about this. And they have a lot more power than most of us growing <laughs> vegetables in hoop houses. But remember, for whatever's going on with dicamba and 2,4-D, we've got climate change coming our way. I mean, it's here, right? And our farmers are going to have to learn how to grow with all kinds of environmental changes going on around them that they can't control. And multiplied over whatever it used to be. And I think that the Chinese have figured this out, and they have created large masses of high thermal mass greenhouses and what's also known as underground greenhouses, which I know sounds counterintuitive, or you may call them year-round greenhouses, are built into hillsides and use the winter sun to help keep them hot. But we we need to start looking in that direction because I fear that a lot of our food production will be under a roof of some kind <laughs> into wow. the future, unfortunately. Yeah. Right. We just have a minute left. Do you have one last thing you want to leave our listeners with? I just want to remind everyone that it all starts with the soil. And when you're driving down the road and you're looking out there through your window, Take a look at how we're using our land, because that is really a representation of our values. So if you love fresh, clean, healthy food, the healthiest you're going to get is if it's grown local. We know that the fewer miles it travels, the more rich it is in nutrition. Then look at how your city planners and your elected officials are using the land around your community and see if you have a way to speak to them about dedicating some of that for food production for the future. And your model really shows us a way where we can make this happen for the future. So I want to thank you so much for your work. Unfortunately, we've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Susan Aram. She is a co-founder and current executive director of the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust a statewide organization that permanently preserves farmland to grow healthy food, what we call table food. And I will provide a link to SILT, which is Sustainable Iowa Land Trust. So it's silt.org. And then I will also provide there the link to the Circle Our Cities campaign. So you can learn more about that. This really will prove to be a national model, I believe. 
And I'll also provide a link to a wonderful document that was done by the American Planning Association in conjunction with the American Nurses Association and the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics about the principles of a truly healthy, sustainable food system. Thank you so much, Susan, for your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. 